At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, let's please take out the Word of God and turn in the Word of God in the Old Testament to the book of Ruth and chapter number three of the book of Ruth. You can find Ruth relatively easily. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament and hiding right behind Joshua and Judges. You know, every once in a while, you hear about an unusual marriage proposal in an unusual place. I was just doing a little research this week on unusual marriage proposals in unusual places, and I found out that a number of people have chosen a roller coaster to be where basically they did a proposal. I have a couple of pictures here where you see a number of people in these various roller coaster cars, and you always have the bride who's sitting in the front. Uh, This one here seems to be enjoying a little bit less because it's always in the scary part where they take your picture. But you know, you have the grooms sitting behind the brides, and then you have some friends, and they're holding up signs. So the picture is taken, and this one says, Lindsay, will you marry me? And he's holding up a sign with an engagement ring. And so then when they come off the ride and they go to that little picture time, then the prospective bride gets to see that and there becomes a marriage proposal. That's an unusual marriage proposal. Uh, I I came across another one where a a prospective groom spent time doing a very detailed sand art thing that was about 30 yards by 30 yards in size. And it says, will you marry me, Heidi? And then what he did after doing all of that is he walked her over to a ledge that was above all of that and then they could look down on that and that is where he proposed to her up on that ledge, will you marry me, Heidi? So that is another unusual place for an unusual proposal. Now I wanna share with you one other one. It's a really fabulous place. It's 139 South 28th Street, Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a house that was built in 1900. So in 1972, it was pretty old. It had been divided up years before into apartments. Now, really what I want you to notice is 139 and a half South 28th Street. If you'll notice, there's this little stairwell over here where you see some arrows, and that leads to a basement apartment. And Mr. Romance, Bruce Hess invited his bride-to-be down the stairs into my tiny little living room there, and I got down on one knee and presented her with a ring. It was a proposal. And I am sure it was all my wife Janet ever dreamed (laughs) it would be. There are some unusual proposals in unusual places. And That's part of what we're going to see in the book of Ruth in chapter 3, an unusual proposal in an unusual place. It's going to be in a threshing floor in the town of Bethlehem. And the proposal is going to happen in a way different than we probably anticipated that it would happen. 
So we're involved in a series that we're calling God Behind the Scene. It's on the book of Ruth. This is message number three. So if you've missed one and two, I would encourage you to go back to our webpage, our YouTube page, check those out because we're going to be building on that. But throughout this series, we have been sharing a perspective, and that is this. Mystery in his plan does not mean there is no purpose in his plan. And all of us can experience mysterious times. We don't know what's going on, but that does not mean there is no purpose in his plan. Now, we have shared with you an overall outline of Ruth, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. I particularly just want you to notice chapter 3, which we come to today. The theme is providence. Today, we're going to see providence and character. It's going to occur on a threshing floor, and the time period of chapter 3 is just one day. And then we've been tracing Ruth through the book and also Naomi through the book. And we've seen Ruth's decision, her devotion. Today we're going to come in chapter 3 to Ruth's character. And then with Naomi, we've seen Naomi embittered, Naomi encouraged. And today we're going to see Naomi expectant. And so just so we have an orientation to the chapter, this is chapter 2 up here, it should be chapter 3. We have Ruth and Naomi in the first five verses. Then we have Ruth and Boaz in verses 6 to 15. And then we have Ruth and Naomi in verses 16 to 18. So what I want to do is just zero in now on the first five verses of Ruth and Naomi. Now Gary Phillips put on his imagination cap and he was wondering if Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, wanted to get some advice, and she was going to write an advice column in the second millennium BC asking for advice, he said it might read a little bit like this. Dear Abigail, my widowed daughter-in-law has daily contact with an older man who shows concern about her and respect for her. In fact, from the moment he saw her, he was deeply interested and has treated her like a princess. But fast forward two months, and he still has not said one word to take their relationship to the next level. She likes him, but he's not getting any younger. How do we get him to ignite his inertia, to light his lethargy, to cancel his coma? Signed, befuddled in Bethlehem. Now, that may be a little over the top, but I think it's actually not too far from reality. And as we come to chapter 3 of the book of Ruth, Naomi has done some gear shifting. I think she has awakened out of her embittered self-focus that we saw in chapter 1. And by the way, here's an interesting thing to note. An excellent way to come out of the paralysis of spiritual discouragement and spiritual disillusionment, an excellent way to come out of that is to start to think about other people, to start to serve other people. And what I surmise is that Naomi, because remember she was at home while Ruth was out gleaning every day, she just began to reflect and think a little bit. And I think she began to think back to the time earlier in Moab when she expressed a very clear prayer concern for her daughters-in-law in in Moab. She had said to them, may the Lord, may Yahweh God, the God of relationship, grant that you find rest each in the house of your husband. 
And I think she was probably thinking back to that prayer. And she was thinking about Ruth's situation now in Bethlehem. I mean, Ruth has no dowry, which was a very big thing then. Ruth was a Moabitess. Remember, we've been talking about that. And something we haven't mentioned yet, but it was very significant in that time, is that while Ruth had been married in Moab for 10 years, she had been barren for 10 years. She'd never had a child. And that was something that put people off. So I think she was thinking about Ruth's situation and she was thinking about Boaz. She was thinking about how he's a blood relative, how he had shown care and kindness both to Ruth and to her. And she was thinking maybe, perhaps, Boaz could be our kinsman redeemer. In fact, back in chapter two and verse 20, she had said to Ruth of Boaz, He is one of our closest relatives. That's the way the New American Standard translates it. The ESV says, he is one of our redeemers. The New Living Translation says, he's one of our family redeemers. And then in the NIV, it's translated, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. So that leads us to a question. What is a kinsman redeemer? Now, a kinsman redeemer was someone who could rescue their relatives, rescue their family from a time of trouble. It could be different forms of trouble. They might be able to buy the land of maybe a deceased or impoverished member of the family so that that land would not be lost to the family at large over time. A kinsman redeemer would be someone who might marry a widow in the family who had lost a husband. But one thing that's interesting about a kinsman redeemer is that there were qualifications that had to be met in order to be a kinsman redeemer. The first qualification is that they had to be a blood relative. Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 25, talk about that. And we know from chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 20, that Boaz was a, a blood relative. Second requirement for a kinsman redeemer is they must be fully free to redeem. See, if you were too poor, you couldn't be the kinsman redeemer. If you were too encumbered in your own debt, you couldn't be the kinsman redeemer. In fact, you might need a redeemer of your own. The third qualification for a kinsman redeemer is they must be willing to redeem. So was Boaz going to be willing? She had thoughts, but she wasn't sure. And then the fourth requirement for a kinsman redeemer is they must have the price of redemption. And it it would appear, because of Boaz's status in the community and being the businessman, the agribusinessman that he was, that he would likely have that. So let's delve a little more deeply into this idea of Ruth and Naomi in verses one to five. We're gonna see Naomi's concern, then Naomi's plan, then Ruth's response in verse five. So let's look at Naomi's concern in verse one. Look, look at verse one with me, if you would. Verse one says, then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security, key phrase here, for you, that it may be well with you. Do you see how Naomi has Ruth on her mind? 
And she's been observing the whole situation and she's been observing Boaz and she's been thinking ahead. And it is worth noting, I think, this. That whenever we are bound up in discouragement or whether we are bound up in disillusionment or whether we, whenever we feel spiritually paralyzed, you know what doesn't happen? We don't think forward. We don't think strategically. When we're in those kind of situations, we don't make plans for the future. Because when we're bound up in discouragement and disillusionment, when we feel spiritually paralyzed, well, we're just roadblocked from thinking forward strategically, making plans for the future. But there's a change that's gone on in Naomi's life. By the way, that's another reason why bitterness is such a trap. Not only does it want to infect every part of our being and our life, but we can't think forward strategically, make plans when we're bound up in it. Now, I really do believe that Naomi was really unsure what was going on. It had been several months. Boaz had not stepped up. He had not expressed more interest in Ruth. And she was thinking, why would that be? Well, one possibility is that Ruth was still in a state of grieving. In that time when you would become a widow, you would dress in grieving clothing. Remember, it had only been a few months that they had been in Bethlehem. And it's very possible that Ruth had those grieving clothes on, and that may be a reason why Boaz wasn't taking things to the next level. Maybe the reason why he wasn't making any approaches towards Ruth about a more serious relationship is that she was younger than him. He was older than her. And maybe he was thinking in his mind, well, she is aiming to have a young husband since she is a, a young woman. Why is he hesitating? Maybe it was he was aware, as we're going to see actually unfold later on, he was aware of a closer relative who had first responsibility to Ruth, and he was just waiting for that guy to take initiation or not to initiate, and then he would maybe do something. The other thing I think that's going on is, remember what's been happening? Ruth has been gleaning in his fields, and they've been hanging out together through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest, and it's now coming to a close. And I think Naomi is thinking in her mind, it's going to be 10 months till the next harvest. What kind of contact are Ruth and Boaz going to have over the next 10 months? Which leads us to Naomi's plan in verses 2 through 4. Now, as we get ready to look at these, I, I, want, to, I want to say this very clearly. This is not a desperate housewives conniving manipulation that's getting ready to happen. It's not that. You see, in that day, when there was a widow, normally it would be the father or the brother of the widow who would approach a prospective groom. We've got no father here. We've got no brother here. And so Naomi takes the adult role to come up with a plan to approach a prospective groom. And then she says in verse 2 that, he is going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. The threshing floor. What in the world is a threshing floor? I mean, we might picture the threshing floor as being a room in some sort of building. It's not that. In fact, we need to go to cultural school here. What was a threshing floor? Well, a threshing floor was an 
outdoor flat open area. Ideally, it would be a little bit on the hilltop so that it could benefit from the wind. And what they would do to make a threshing floor is they would lay down flat rocks, as you see in this picture, or they would work hard to tamp the ground down very hard. And when you would have a threshing floor that might serve an area around, maybe several farms would utilize it, it might be the size of our front circle drive out here in front of the building, which is about 84 feet across. That's what a threshing floor is. Now, what do you do on a threshing floor? You thresh, exactly. What does that mean? Well, what they would do is they would take the sheaves of the barley or the wheat, the stalks, and they would put them on the hardened ground, and then maybe they would have oxen trample that all down, or they would beat the stalks with a threshing sledge, which was a plank embedded with stones. So they've got this grain on the ground, they're beating it down, or they're trampling it down, and then what comes next is what they call winnowing. You say, what is winnowing? Well, what they would do then with all this stuff that had been tramped down and beat down is they would wait for the west wind late in the afternoon or early in the evening. They would take large wooden forks, just as you see in this picture, and they would toss all of that mixture up in the air. The wind would blow the chaff away, that is the grain covers and the straw, and the heavier grain heads would fall down to the floor of the threshing floor. And then what they would do is they would gather the grain heads into piles, and then they would often then bag those and stack them in one corner of the threshing floor, and then what they would do, because it's dark city at this time of night, is they would sleep to guard their grain. So that's the situation that Naomi is pushing Ruth towards. And she gives her some directions. In verse three, she says, as part of the plan, you need to wash yourself. Now, it's important to remember that gleaning was a very sweaty and dirty job, and she had been doing that every day for a number of weeks. And that means you don't smell so well, right? And remember, it's not like, well, they took a shower every night. No, 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 no. In that part of the world, water is at a premium. And she says, if you're going to go to the threshing floor, you need to wash yourself. And then he, she says, you need to anoint yourself there in verse three. Now remember, they had no deodorants in that day. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a part of the world where they don't have deodorant. I remember when I first went to Latvia and was around some teenagers. Woo, woo, woo. That was a special experience. <laughs> so there's no deodorant. So what they would do is they would use aromatic oils to make themselves smell more pleasant. And so I think Naomi said to Ruth, you know, grab some of that midnight in Moab stuff that you brought with you and put that on. And then she talks to her in verse three about changing her clothes. What does that really mean? I think she was saying it's time to get out of your widow garb. It's time to set that aside and put on some regular clothes and bring along your large cloak 
And then she says in verse 3, what I want you to do is I want you to wait until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, why would she say that? Well, he's like a typical guy, you know? Better frame of mind when you've had something good to eat and something to drink. Which leads us then to verse 4. She says, it shall be that when he lies down for the night, that you shall notice the place where he lies. There's going to be several men there. Make sure you get the right guy. And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. Now, this is not an inappropriate thing she's asking her to do. She's asking her to approach Boaz in a discreet and appropriate way. Now, Naomi had observed Boaz, and I think she was confident that he was a man, a godly man of integrity. And the whole idea of doing this is we're going to see this little proposal that Ruth is going to do. Naomi is thinking if he has no interest in Ruth, he will respond in a proper and private manner. Which leads us then to Ruth's response there in verse 5. She basically said, what you've told me to do, I'm going to do. So then we turn to Ruth and Boaz in verses 6 to 15, and we have Ruth's proposal in verses 6 to 9. Verse 7 tells us that Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not saying he was drunk. It's saying he was contented. He was satisfied. And as I try to picture this, you know, it's been a lot of hard work for multiple days. And now basically everything's wrapped up and in the morning we're gonna carry off all of our grain. And I just picture him having a good meal, a little bit to drink, and he's maybe laying down now and he's staring up at the stars and he's just grateful to God that the famine is over and they've had a great harvest. It's been very tiring, but he was very, very pleased with what God has allowed to happen and he falls asleep. And then it says in verse seven, that she came secretly, that is quietly, and uncovered his feet and laid down. Now that little phrase, uncovered his feet, is an interesting one. This is the only place that it is used in all of the Old Testament. And some people read that and they go, this was something sensual, sexual that was going on here. She uncovered his feet. And they build that around a phrase that you often see in the Old Testament where someone uncovers someone's nakedness And they see that word uncovered being used and they think, well, it's probably a sexual thing. It's not a sexual thing. What does it mean when it says that she uncovered his feet? It means that she uncovered his feet. That's what it means. Now, when you uncover someone's feet during the night when there's gonna be cool air, what's probably gonna happen? They're gonna wake up sometime in the night. And that's exactly what happens in verse 8. In the middle of the night, the man was startled. The Hebrew word just means to be jolted, to be shocked, because he realizes there is a woman at his feet. And you have to think, he was thinking, well, who is this? As we talked about, a lot of the prostitutes would come around at this time of the year. Is he thinking it's one of those prostitutes? And man, oh my gosh, if the Bethlehem Beacon tabloid got a hold of this one, there would be a citywide scandal. And so he says to her there in verse nine, who are you? And she says, Ruth, your maid. 
Now, it's important to understand here, this took some spiritual boldness on Ruth's part. By the way, did you notice that she, she did not wait for Boaz to instruct her as Naomi said should happen? In other words, she makes a bold move here. I mean, she is a Moabite and she is now approaching an Israelite. She is a poor widow who is approaching a wealthy man. She is a young woman who is approaching an older man. It is a bold move that she makes. And I want you to notice two things that are said in verse nine. She says, spread your covering over your maid. What does that mean? Well, it was an idiom. It was an idiom expressing her desire for marriage. The idea of spreading your covering over your maid was was just a picture of protection and provision in life. She's basically saying, I would like you to provide protection and provision. It's an expression of her desire for marriage. By the way, in the Middle East, parts of the Middle East even today, that's a, a part of the marriage ceremony where a symbolic cloak is placed around the bride. This is so clear that it's an idiom. The Net Bible translates it, marry your servant, because that's what it meant when she used that idiom. Second thing I want you to notice in verse 9, he says, you, she says, you are a close relative. The NIV says, you are our family redeemer. See, really what Ruth was doing here, not only making a proposal for a desire for marriage, but she was expressing her concern for Naomi. She's basically saying to him, I want you to help provide for Naomi too. Which then leads us to Boaz's response in verses 10 to 13. Notice he says there in verse 10, May you be blessed of Yahweh God, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. What was the first kindness that she showed? A willingness to leave the land of Moab, to leave her family behind, and to go with Naomi to Bethlehem, and to care for Naomi, and then her willingness to work hard in the field and to glean. That was the first kindness. The last kindness is better than that. What's the last kindness? Well, it's your desire, Ruth, to secure Naomi's future. And he basically says, you could have just married any young man, poor or rich. By the way, when he says that, it indicates that Ruth had to be very attractive if she could have married any poor or rich guy. But he's basically commending her here is for her concern for Naomi, for Naomi's family's land, for Naomi's family name being carried on in the future. Look at verse 11. He says, now my daughter, do not fear. I mean, can you imagine the apprehension that Ruth had in all this, the way her heart had it beating fast and the boldness of what she was doing? He says, don't fear. And then he says an amazing thing. He says, all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. We've been talking about this, the importance of character when it comes to our testimony before other people. Now, you may not know this, but in the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Ruth 
follows the book of Proverbs. It's interesting. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, the last proverb is Proverb 31. An excellent wife who can find. Remember that? A hardworking, character, dignity, efficiency woman is a wife who can find. And it's interesting the way that's all laid out because it's the exact same phrase about excellence that is used in Proverbs 31 of the excellent wife. It's almost as if, you know, you have the book of Proverbs and you have Proverbs 31 and then, oh, let's illustrate that by looking at the person of Ruth, which follows right after that. Well, in verse 12, he says, it's true I'm a close relative. However, he says, however, that little word, however, there's a fly in the ointment, there's a potential roadblock, there's a hitch in the giddy-up. There's a snag. And that is there is a closer relative than I am who has the first option of marrying you. He goes on in verse 13, he says, I want you to just stay here for the night. You don't want to travel at night. It was highly perilous to travel in the middle of the night and the city gates of Bethlehem were probably closed. He said, basically wait around until morning. And then we see Boaz's provision in verses 14 and 15. What he ends up doing is he says, I want you to give me the cloak. And she held it out and he measured six of barley. Doesn't tell us what the measuring amount was. Doesn't use gallon or quart or whatever. I'm gonna give you six of barley. So we don't really know for sure what the measurement was. We, we've already talked about some of the measurements. We talked about an ephah, which is a very large measurement. There was an omer, which was a very small measurement. And then there was a sia, which was sort of a medium measurement. And most commentators believe that when he gave her six of barley, it was six seahs of barley, which would have been about 60 pounds of grain. They would have put into her cloak and helped her to get that on her back. Then that leads us back to Ruth and Naomi in verses 16 to 18, where we have Ruth's report in verses 16 and 17. It's interesting how verse 16 begins. She comes back to her mother-in-law, and Naomi says, how did it go, my daughter? It's interesting. Literally in Hebrew, it's who are you? Well, she knew who it was. But really what she was asking was this. Who are you? Ruth, the widow, who is going to continue to grieve, or are you Ruth, the future Mrs. Boaz? And so she tells, unpacks the whole story to Naomi, and then she says in verse 17 that he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Now that is another statement of the providence of God in Naomi's life, because in chapter 1, verse 21, she said, the Lord brought me back here empty-handed. And now Boaz is saying, don't go to your mother-in-law empty-handed, same word. It was really a statement that he was making to Naomi. A statement he was saying that I intend to care for Naomi also. So we look again at that perspective we've been looking at all along. Mystery in his plan, a lot of mysterious things happened, does not mean there's no purpose in his plan. Which leads us then to Naomi's counsel in verse 18, where basically she says, wait, my daughter, until you know how this turns out. 
for the man, Boaz, will not rest until he has settled it today. Remember, it's early in the morning. I mean, they're anticipating some kind of exciting ending. <laughs> How's it going to end? What's going to happen? Well, more than they could ever imagine. Because as we're going to see when we get to chapter 4, both of them are going to have the opportunity to be in the lineage of the greatest king of Israel, King David, and ultimately in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible story. Let's pull back and look at some life lessons that I think we can have from this. First life lesson is this. When seeking a future mate, keep character at the top of the list. It's a great life lesson. Certainly we would hope every young person would learn that lesson. And by the way, the best place to start in this is to become the right person yourself. You want to find a future mate who has character? Become the right person. Become a person of character yourself. In the last time when we were in chapter 2, we stated Boaz was a person of character And because he's a person of character, he values the character in the life of other people. So he valued the character he saw in Ruth. Second life lesson. Pursue sexual purity. God will honor it. Translation, be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. What do we learn from them? Remember the environment they were living in? Very immoral environment. What do we learn from them? Purity can be practiced in an immoral environment. And you may be listening to my voice and you're thinking in your mind, you know, I'm single and I've kind of slipped in this area of sexual purity. Hey, that's something that can be confessed. And then you can make some changes and you can start the practice of purity sexual purity where you are. And if you do that, God will honor that. Third, life lesson. Don't allow yourself to be entrapped by bitterness and resentment. Remember, it only leads to spiritual paralysis. And we can't really do much of anything. We certainly can't think about the future. Instead, what you do is you shift your eyes to serving other people which is what brought Naomi out of her bondage to bitterness and resentment. And then the last life lesson I think we can get from this is to remember God works through people. God works through people. Sometimes we just forget that. We are his hands and we are his feet. Isn't it interesting how we look at it? Naomi has concern for Ruth Ruth has concern for Naomi. Boaz has concern for Ruth and Naomi. God wants to use you, even this next week. So you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, who maybe could God use me or you to bring encouragement or to bring blessing or to bring compassion to someone who needs it? We need to remember that God works through people. He wants to work through you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is so practical. It is so real. And you want us not just to 
travel through the story. You want this story to leave an imprint on our life, especially even as we're coming into this season of the year. Come before this whole opportunity of Mission Norman Christmas Shop. We pray that you would use us to bring some encouragement and some compassion to people. Maybe they're people at work, maybe someplace at school in our neighborhood. Remind us that you want to use us for your honor and for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.